Hallo, Andrea Bertozzi. We met here in Oxford at the British Applied Mathematics Colloquium. And yesterday you gave him a lecture about um, application of mathematics to problems in crime. So, for example, crime prediction and things developing from there, which was really fascinating to me. That's why I was asking you for a conversation about that today. So maybe a, a good first question uh, to start our conversation is, um, what kind of mathematical ideas can you use to predict crime? Oh, thanks so much for your interest in our work. Um, we've used quite a lot of different models to predict crime, but the one that is the most successful today in terms of field work with the police is a model um, that arises uh, in studying earthquakes and aftershocks. And we are using it now um, in a, a very different setting, um, looking at crimes that that inspire new crimes uh, near the space and time when the original crime occurred. So this is, we call this an excitation. Um, one, one event um, excites another event. So kind of a trigger. A trigger, exactly. Mm. And we have a statistical model that we use. Um, and uh, this seems to work quite well in the field. We've done field trials on this model. Um, that, that actually just has just come out in print in the Journal of the American Statistical Association looking at different cities, some in the United Kingdom and some in the United States. Yeah, maybe we can put this in the references uh, on the page because mm -hmm. this could be really interesting to see how things work out in, out in practice. Uh, if you use the data, uh, are you just um, kind of uh, trying to find out and guess um, parameters for your models? That's exactly right. So the the data, um, so the model actually uses data up until um, the next time period when when the model is going to be used. So in, a, in, a, in an application setting, in a field trial setting, uh, what happens is that you have police who go out on a shift. And so when they leave for their shift, they'll typically take the predictions for that shift with them. But those predictions use all of the information right up until they go on their shift, you know, whatever's available. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that the software have... Um, very good uh, data as an input. Yes, but the data is available in this case because there's, of course, some kind of crime statistics. Exactly. Yeah. So, the, so the, the program is meant for law enforcement agencies, and so they're, they're going to be providing the, the data for their own implementation. Yeah. So if you um, had the idea to use this um, model which existed for... Uh, earthquakes, um, kind of exciting in the middle where the earthquakes takes part and then mm -hmm. there are some waves going out. That's at least the idea I have of, of earthquakes. Um, what are the mathematical um, ideas which are in this model which then translate um, to the excitement of crime? Exactly. So so we don't go to quite to the extreme connection of looking at wave motion. In fact, we're not thinking about it in that way at all. Mm -hmm. We're thinking about um, individual events um, seeding other events. And one can, one can look at 
the statistics of these. And so, um, for example, what you can ask is, if you have an event, what is the um, the likelihood of a new event within some radius of this initial event, and how does that likelihood how how like how does it decay in time? Um, what's the rate of triggering? One can try to measure these parameters, and typically we have a small number of parameters. So there's a there's a likelihood of a trigger that's like a probability. There's a time scale over which that that triggering behavior decays, mm. right? So that you go back to a background rate of events. And then there's also um, how far it spreads in space. So there's a spatial length scale. So in the case of earthquakes, that length scale is going to be some number of kilometers. Um, you know, it could be it could be um, 100 kilometers. Yes, but this is in radial. Exactly. Yeah. And in the case of crime, it's typically a much shorter length scale. So so it's not a one-to-one match between the earthquake earthquake models and the crime. Another effect that you see in earthquakes is typically you could have a big quake, but the aftershocks would have a different intensity. So one also looks at intensity mm. values, whereas in the crime forecasting, we don't do that. We treat all the crimes as being essentially the same intensity. So um, I, I suppose one could try to add that to the model, But um, sometimes it's a little hard to assess intensity because you could look at the intensity of the outcome, but that might not be directly correlated to, um, you know, what was actually happening by the, you know, in terms of the actions of the criminal. You know, so for example, in a shooting, you could have, you could have, you know, three people killed or no one killed, but the criminal could have been acting the same way. It's just just bad luck yeah, if he doesn't. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> if you exactly. are killed, yes. Exactly. Yeah, and it's also, of course, um, brings you also to moral decisions in the model. If you kind of have to say what is a big crime and what is. A That's right. So we we basically don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also kind of um, you don't want to decide which kind of crime is worse to be prevented uh, by yeah. going out. Yeah, I mean, typically this model is useful for crimes of opportunity rather than premeditated premeditated crime. Although some, some, uh, some of those burglaries might actually be premeditated, we still look at them as crimes of opportunity because the premeditation would be part of the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. so it's not the crime which is um, found in the detective novel. No, not so much. <laughs> yeah, these are the crimes that we're forecasting are much more mundane You know, not not the high-profile ones you read about in detective yeah. stories. That's right. Really uh, that's probably the day-to-day -day work of the policeman. Exactly. Exactly. So, and how is the experience if you uh, come with such an idea to work together with the police? Because you know, um, as a mathematician, we, we are used to work with a lot of people, but very often they are engineers. That's right. That's right. Basic mm -hmm. mathematical background. But if you go to police, I'm not so sure about their mathematical background and their belief in mathematics. That's right. So um, that connection was actually made by a colleague of mine who is a social scientist. Mm -hmm. And social scientists have a bit more training in dealing with these kinds of problems. So mm -hmm. um, I have a collaborator, Jeff Brantingham, who is a professor of anthropology at UCLA. And he came to me um, about 10 years ago and asked if I was interested in working with him. He already had established some contacts with the police, and he was very keen to involve mathematicians because he felt that 
the the sorts of things that needed to be done in this field were beyond what a typical social scientist can do in terms of the quantitative training that one needs. So he asked me if I was interested. I had never worked with a social scientist, so I was a little bit skeptical because I didn't know, um, you know, if we would even approach the problems with the same kind of scientific ideas. And after an hour meeting with him, I was really convinced that he knew what he was talking about, that he had some interesting ideas. And so we then, after that point, we then decided to see if we could find some funding um, to support students to work on this. And we we did. We, we got our first grant from the U.S. National Science Foundation, um, and it was a collaboration between two mathematicians, myself and Lincoln Chase, who is a stati- he's trained in statistical physics, but mm-hmm. he's in the mathematics department at UCLA, and um, and Jeff Brantingham and um, George Tita. George is a criminology professor at U- University of California, Irvine, which is not too far from UCLA, maybe uh, one hour by car. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, and George is also an expert on the Los Angeles gangs. Um, So that was a that was an excellent collaboration. And we started working together. And within a year or two, we hired some really outstanding young um, postdocs who worked with us. Um, So um, those those people were Virginia Paysauer, George Moeller, Martin Short and Maria Dorsanya. And um, all of these people are now um, at, a, at a later stage in their career. They all have um, permanent positions, three in, in universities, and one working for an agency of the federal government in the United States. So, um, what, Quite a success story. Yeah, no, it's very, I mean, so that's, that's a, an aspect of this project. Because we were sort of the first group um, in the United States to be bringing the mathematicians and the social scientists together to study security applications in this way, um, it opened a lot of doors for young people to expand, to ha- sort of work with us in expanding the research. So, for example, the, the idea of the earthquake model, that was really... Um, that was really kind of pushed forward by George Moeller when he was a postdoc at UCLA. Um, and he he started talking to another colleague of mine, uh, Rick Schoenberg, who is a professor of statistics at UCLA. Uh, so so he then came and started working with us as well. And and uh, Rick is an expert on these earthquake models. So that was the impetus for using that idea um, was the fact that we had one of the world experts in these models. Yeah. Already um, at UCLA, he he was literally one floor above us in the same building. So it was a very easy and very natural collaboration, and uh, that um, that collaboration led to a manuscript coming becoming uh, published in the Journal of the American Statistical Association in 2011. Um, and that same year, Santa Cruz Police Department started using this idea um, in a software program for predictive policing. And in the first month um, of the use of that 
of that program, they had a significant reduction in crime in the city. I think it was on the order of 27%. Yeah, which is really kind of believable that it is true to this Well, it was, it was very exciting yeah. for us. Um, you know, I'll tell you, at the time, Santa Cruz was not doing a lot with quantitative analysis. And so there was an opportunity to go in there and make a big difference. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. I guess there are a lot of different types of work which can be done so that you have Uh, can include um, students on a graduate level and um, undergraduate level even, and then the postdocs uh, which have to come up, of course, with really original new ideas to, to push this forward. That's right. We've had quite a number of students involved. Um, I would say well over 50 undergraduates have been involved. Um, so, for example, we had an undergraduate team in in uh, the summer of, I think it was the summer of 2009, um, they studied gang crime data. It was the first time we actually looked at this idea of self-excitation applied to gangs. And it's a very natural idea because if you have a gang that decides sort of spontaneously to go and attack their rival gang, then it's not a surprise that soon afterwards there would be another event, either the the rival gang attacking the original gang or um, perhaps the, 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 the initial attack wasn't successful or maybe didn't elicit the response they wanted, so they might go again and attack again. And so um, we had our students look at the temporal dynamics on this rivalry network. We have an area in Los Angeles with about 30 street gangs all in a small area, and they have a known um, rather complex rivalry network structure. So every gang has a handful of other gangs that they are enemies with. Um, And so it's not the case that every gang in this neighborhood fights with every other gang. Typically, so there's a there's a bit of fatigue. In other mm -hmm. words, once you have a once you have a, a, a small list of enemies, that's enough, and you focus on those enemies rather than fighting um, the Everybody, entire yeah. the entire 30 street gangs. And it's probably also not feasible. Yeah, exactly. So we had our students look at the. And also, I should add that in this neighborhood, you can have hundreds of crimes in one year. Um, and most of them are believed to be related to the gang um, activities. And so we had our students look at this data and, and uh, apply basic statistical ideas, maximum penalized likelihood estimation, to estimate the three parameters in what we call the Hawks process model. For, um, for retaliatory behavior. And we found that, um, in, that in that research, uh, the students found that um, a large fraction of these gang rivalry pairs um, fit quite well the Hawks process model and not so well uh, a basic um, Poisson arrival process model. And so that led us to um, some work that was more at the level of a PhD thesis. Um, my student, Alexei Stamakin, mm -hmm. um, did part of his PhD thesis on using this idea to, to try to, to um, 
not so much for for forecasting new crimes, but looking at crimes where we didn't know which gang was responsible, could we use the self-exitory model to try to identify the most likely gangs responsible for unsolved crimes? And what would be the main difference, mathematically speaking, um, between the Poisson process and the hoax process? Sure. So um, the, the Poisson process is, a, is basically a single parameter model. You just have some background rate yeah, at which that's events the one occurs. Which, you know, we always it's classic. Have, yeah. That's right. It's classical. And, uh, and the, the main point is that there's no memory. So once an event occurs, it has no connection whatsoever to future events or to past events. Everything is completely independent. Everything is completely mm. independent. And the Hox process builds on the Poisson process. So, so the Hox process has one term that is exactly the Poisson process, and that's your background rate. And those, those events are independent. But then you have new events that can be basically triggered by previous events that might be background events where they might be might be triggering events themselves. And mm. so um, so basically the extra term in the, in the Hox process is one where you have an excitation rate and you have uh, an exponential decay of that, expita- ex- of that excitation. Um, and that exponential has um, in it um, the time since the most recent incident. So that's the memory effect. So it's dependent on actual events rather than a likelihood of events, right? Yeah. Right? And so and there's some rate of decay. So there are three parameters. There's the background rate, there's the rate at which you excite something, um, and then there's the time scale of decay of the excitation. Yes, that you don't keep it in your mind forever. That's right. So basically what we do is we look at the three-parameter model for the self-exciting point process and we compare it with a a single-parameter model, the Poisson process. And then we have a criteria that we use to figure out which is a better fit to the data. And that's the Akaki information criteria. Yes, and in, in a way this is a number then really. Exactly, and so um, so that ca- those calculations are ones that um, are not too difficult. They're they're very appropriate for younger students, like our undergraduates, and mm. so we have had them working with field data. To, A lot of numbers crunching. Yeah, yeah, but those. And you can and you can do that, and you can use those ideas, the fit, the parameters that you fit to, um, to make predictions by extrapolating forward in time, and that's essentially what the PredPol software does. But another thing that you can do, and this is what one of our PhD students did, was once you have an idea of the parameters, you can also use the model um, to solve the inverse problem which is um, trying to figure out if you have some of these ev- events that, that where we know the time at which they occurred, but we don't know who was responsible. You can try to figure out the optimal solution of the assignment problem of assigning each of those events to, um, to one gang or one pair of gangs. So would you have to run a lot of simulations for that and then optimize between them, or what is the idea? That's a good question. So the way that we chose to solve it, this was in our paper published in Inverse Problems in 2011 with Alexi and Martin Short, 
And in that paper, we actually wrote down an equation that is um, a variational model. Variational models involve trying to find some energy, um, which is related, of course, to the, the actual model for the data. And the missing information, then, you would you would fit the so you so you would t you would take a guess at what the the answer would be for the missing information and then you plug it into the variational model and it gives you an answer of what the energy is and so then then there, there becomes an optimization problem of of finding the best choice for and the missing your guess step by step yeah and so you mm -hmm. could do there are many ways of trying to do this you could try to do you could just try to to try all possible combinations. Um, and that that is very easy to do with a small number of unsolved crimes because you have uh, the, you know, the combinatorial problem uh, is rather simple and it's tractable. But if you look at some of the real problems coming from our uh, colleagues in the Los Angeles Police Department, a, a real situation that they're interested in might have, uh, you know, a hundred or several hundred unsolved crimes in a year. And they would want to be able to get some good ideas for many of these crimes simultaneously. And so for that problem, the, looking at all possible combinations is just computationally intractable. So what's really interesting is that we can actually make the problem easier in some sense by increasing the possible choices for the solution. Yeah, because anyway, you have this point where you have to throw away the combinatorial solution. Exactly. Because it's really for a small number only it's possible. That's right. That's and right. even if you know, we, um, we know that the computers become uh, faster and faster. That's and so right. So the number gets bigger and bigger, but not um, big enough anyway. That's right. And so what we do is it's kind of ironic <laughs> that you can go from a discrete possible number of choices to a continuum of choices, which which in some sense is many, many more choices. It's mind-bending. Yes. Yeah, but somehow going to the continuum allows us to slide these possibilities through this continuum of space continuously until you find, you sort of slide it to an optimal solution. Um, we use a gradient ascent method. It's a very simple Simple, one of the simplest methods yes, in the one standard so which we really yeah, understand. Yes. An optimization, and mm. suddenly the computational power needed is much less. And so that's one of the beautiful things about mathematics is you can take what looks like a really impossible problem and, and look at it from a different point of view, and suddenly it's quite quite computationally tractable. Mm. I think this is one of the beautiful things about the field, and it's and that point of view is something that is. Um, easier done by a, a graduate student who has more training in mathematics because they've already been introduced to these different types of models. And so it's more natural for them to think about it that way. Yeah, because of course they can rely on a lot of things which are already known, uh, but they really have to have them uh, not only in their mind for, for a kind of an examination or something, they really have to, to work with them. And so they really have to be able to improve them even, and this is only possible after a certain amount of time in mathematics. That's right, that's right. You know, another thing that, that's been kind of fun for us is to bring ideas from a very hot area of, of research and data science, um, compressed sensing. 
um, into some of these problems involving crime forecasting. So what would be the idea of compressed sensing? Yeah, so, you know, compressed sensing is... It may, uh, tries to leverage sparsity in data. Um, do you have a way of representing information so that it's sparse? And you know, so one example was um, we were looking at the question of if if you have if you're given a, a, a number of locations of recent crimes, can you come up with a probability distribution of what the rate of crime is in different parts of the city? You know, on a fine scale. And, and in particular, one of the things that we expect in a city is that um, in terms of location, the crime rate may have quite um, pronounced concentrations in some areas and, and might, you know, drop off rather dramatically if you have, you know, an area where you have people living in an area that's a commercial zone. And, of course, in cities, these are right next to each other. Yeah. Um, you should see that sh those sharp boundaries um, now, it turns out that the the classical statistical models for density estimation, I'm thinking things like kernel density estimation, they're based on, um, you know, sort of Gaussian spatial distributions. So you have like a peak, and then from this peak, everything is smoothed down, and then you have the exactly. parameter, where is the peak, and how fast it is. Exactly, yes. exactly. And... And uh, and those models make a lot of sense if you're looking at things like earthquakes. But if you're looking at um, spatial distributions in cities where you have sharp changes in population in population density or in the use of the space, um, you need something that is more appropriate. And so, um, in the field of inverse problems, there are energy functionals that people use that have jumps, and one of those is called the total variation um and, and yeah which is the nightmare if you're doing analytical stuff is that yeah but, uh, of course for these kinds of models it's the only thing which really works because yeah. you need the jumps exactly exactly so total variation does not penalize against against jumps yeah and uh and and it turns so the total variation if we're going to now get into the technical details um that's the l1 norm of the gradient And the L1 norm is um, is well known now in compressed sensing to somehow um, promote sparsity in the solution. And so, in the case of total variation, what you're actually promoting is is kind of sparsity of edges mm -hmm. in the in the in the solution. And so, you know, one thing that we did around the same time that um, Alexi's paper came out, um, we have another paper. Um, with uh, George Moeller and two of my other colleagues from UCLA, Stan Osher and Tom Goldstein. Um, this was right after Tom and Stan published one of one of the landmark papers in compressed sensing, which is the split Bregman algorithm um, for L1 minimization. And at the time, we were thinking about better ways of doing density estimation. When you do statistical density estimation, you actually have to... So there is a, there is a problem of figuring out parameters, one parameter in particular. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so what one, what one does is, is called cross-validation, where you, where you hold some of the, of the sample points from the data, you, you hold them and you test against other points. But you have to do this 
quite a number of times. So you have to do repeated optimization problems, which is computationally expensive. Mm -hmm. And this is why one of the reasons why kernel density estimation is such an, a nice method, because it's very simple, and there's, a, there's one parameter, and it can be done very, very fast. Um, so what was kind of fun for us was to show that you could take something like the split-Bregman method, and suddenly what would have been uh, a calculation with total variation that, you know, five years earlier would have taken, you know, on the scale of hours to run um, with cross-validation, suddenly is running in a couple of minutes. Right? A couple of minutes is always good because yeah. then you stay, can stay there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so it's been, a, it's been a very opportune time to get into this area of security applications, not only because it's a new field for applied mathematics, but also because of the computational algorithm development in data science itself. So it's been, it's been nice to kind of live on the boundary of those areas and be able to collaborate across different fields. Yeah. So th this sounds also, um, you speak completely enthusiastic about your work. So I think uh, from, from this experience that you like to be a mathematician. So when did you decide to become a mathematician and why? Oh, I think I always wanted to be. <laughs> I mean, I can remember when I was about five years old learning about negative numbers. And I thought that was pretty cool. You know, mm. we were, I remember playing with blocks and learning how to add and using the blocks. And at one point, a teacher t mentioned negative numbers, and that was like taking away a block. And I thought that was just wonderful that you could have sort of anti-blocks, you know? I mean, I had sort of had this, I had the abstract idea in my head, and I can remember this when I was about five years old, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think I had a head that was well-suited well for mathematics from a very young age, and I always had a passion for it, even when I was a small child. Um, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in a, a place where I was exposed to a lot of mathematics from a very young age. So it was a natural decision for you to study mathematics. It was almost like there was never a decision. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it just, it was what I what I did. And then uh, changing to university yeah. was your experience there, as you expected, or were you very surprised about how mathematics was presented there? Not really. I mean, the only surprise was that I it was at a much more abstract level than I was used to in grade school, yeah. but this wasn't an impediment for me. I found this quite exciting, um, but I also never lost my passion for the connection to the real world. Um, when I was a, a college student, I also studied quite a lot of physics, um, both astronomy and physics, and mm -hmm. so, you know, quantum mechanics, general relativity, cosmology, I took classes in all of those areas, and I also learned some fluid dynamics And I always felt that the mathematics was sort of came to life when you could see it acting in the real world. And so that's why I work on the problems I do, because I find them the most interesting. Yeah. yeah. What was your topic um, of your master's thesis? Oh, well, I didn't write a master's thesis because um, that's typically not done in the United States. It's the funny because in, in Germany we are told that we have to adapt to the American system to have bachelor and master, and it's completely not true. Yeah, no, it's, well, the, most of the, of the U.S. students go, if they do a Ph.D., they go straight from undergraduate into Ph.D., mm -hmm. and that's actually a big jump, and I think it discourages some from, yeah, mm -hmm. 
I mean, I I went to a very rig- I went through a very rigorous undergraduate program at Princeton, and so I was well prepared to go right to PhD. Um, and the, getting a master's degree was just a matter of passing the uh, PhD exams, and that was enough to get a master's degree. But I didn't have to write a separate thesis. Yeah, but then you were also taking courses during that time, at least in the beginning. That's right. And I should say that one thing I, I mean, this is not typical, I would say, but But um, one thing I did do as an undergraduate was I solved an original research problem as part of my undergraduate thesis, and that was published in the Siam Journal of Mathematical Analysis. So that that itself probably would have been equivalent to a master's project. That's quite something. Yeah, yes, I would be so proud of a student. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't think of it as anything unusual at the time because I was given the problem and told to work on it, and I I assumed that was what I was expected to do, so I did. Mm. Yeah. And so, um, in which way did you specialize for your PhD? Was it already clear after you uh, graduated, and which kind of direction you want to go? And it worked really that way. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, actually, not at all, because my PhD thesis was in applied analysis. Mm-hmm. I was proving theorems related to incompressible and viscid fluid flow. And I went to University of Chicago as a postdoc with the intention of doing a lot of more research exactly in that area. I was working with Peter Constantine. Yeah, I know him. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and we... Uh, we compressible guy. Yeah, we, well, we, uh, we wrote one paper um, that was uh, that people liked. It was on the vortex patch boundary. Um, but it basically solved the problem. And then I, I thought, okay, what, what should I work on now? And I started meeting with um, other researchers who did more than just prove theorems, right? I started working with Michael Brenner, who was a PhD student of Leo Kadanoff mm-hmm. at the time in physics. Um, Michael was very interested in fluid interface problems, and there were there were a lot of PDEs and um, his advisor, um, Kadanoff, was a, a world expert in physics, but not so much in partial differential equations. So, um, so Leo actually came to me and asked me if I would be interested to work with his student um, to provide some additional advising on the equations. And this sounded like a wonderful opportunity. Um, and if you followed Michael's career, he's now a a full professor at Harvard, so um, he's done He's done quite well. And I, I can't say that I'm, I'm the result of that, but what I can say is that I had a wonderful person to work with um, as a young person, um, you know, getting interested in a new field. Um, I also worked with Todd DuPont, who was a, who still is a professor of mathematics and computer science and, and an expert in numerical analysis. And I had almost no exposure mm. to that area of research when I was a PhD student. And so it, that was also um, a very good opportunity for me to learn scientific computing and numerical analysis when I was in my postdoctoral Years, um, so I basically expanded my research. I would say almost by a factor of three, by getting connected to physicists and also learning how to do computing. Yeah, yeah, that's what I I was thinking while you were talking. That in a way, um, what you need uh, to do these kinds of things we were talking about earlier is 
of course you need the mathematics otherwise you can't build the models mm -hmm. and uh, you also have to see uh, really how the parameters work in them and why they work but then you have to also have the picture in mind how in, in the application what does it mean which you prescribed as having physical uh, co-workers and physical um, education but then you are there and you can't do anything without the computer That's right. So you, you really need at you need the computer. That's person's right. doing that for you, yeah. and this is even not enough because you really have to tell them in which way uh, they have to treat that. That's right. And I got into computing in the early 1990s. This was this was right around the time when the internet went commercial for the first time. So it was a very exciting time mm -hmm. to be in research. Desktop computing um, had only really been in existence for a few years. It was really an optimal time to, to sort of branch out in this direction. And uh, what kind of a typical um, computer would you use just now for these kinds of, um, just, you know, being curious? Yeah, no, it's, what it's size a good is question. Really yeah, it depends on what problem you're computing. But a lot of the things that we do are, are problems that you can easily solve on a desktop or a laptop machine you do not use need to use anything sophisticated on the other hand if you need if you are working on a problem with large um which much with a much larger data set um one could look at parallel computing hmm. and in my group we you know we do um some parallel computing i have one project where we're actually running code on a supercomputer um, that's more of a data science-oriented problem than, than a you know one that's yeah, focused but on crime. But, also, they know. have this tendency to, that in the end you really need um, specialists from different fields. So one who really has the brain for making structure in the data. So just yep. you know, yep. on the absolute meta level. That's right. Then one person who really is kind of in tone with programming things, and then persons who really still know what the data represent. That's right. And I collaborate with a lot of people. Mm. You know, I find that this is a way to work on problems that are bigger than what I can do myself. And so I have, I have a collaborator, Alice Conigas, who's at uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in the National Energy Research Supercomputing Center. Mm. And so one of my students has been working with her, and, and the student has, has spent months at a time up in Berkeley um, working on the computers up there. Um, so it's just nice to have collaborators who can, who can contribute to a project and and bring it to the level it needs to be brought to. Yes. So maybe bringing our conversation uh, to an end, what would be an advice uh, you would have? You know, except the advice to work with you because you have all the exciting problems. <laughs> Uh, what would be an advice for a young person uh, thinking about what to do, um, maybe going into mathematics or not going into mathematics? Oh, I think the opportunities are really fantastic. And I think that, um, you know, mathematics, unlike other areas, it really forces you to think about things at a fundamental level. Um, and, but also, it, you know, this is, what I, this is what I tell people. When I was a young child... Um, I actually grew up in an academic family, so my father's a physicist, and he would take myself and my sisters, he would take us to the Science Museum in Boston um, rather frequently on the weekends. And he, he would say to us, you know, one day you're going to be a scientist too, and so you have to figure out which, which area you like the most. Now, 
I couldn't decide because I liked the whole museum. I thought it was all fun. And then what I discovered, of course, is when I was an adult, that if you if you do applied mathematics, you can actually work on all, lots of different areas. You're not restricted just to applications, you know, like like the earthquake problem, right? You can you can use the mathematics as a connector between completely different areas of science. It's more like a special language, yes. Exactly. And this is one of the most exciting things that I find in this in in what the research that I do is being able to make connection use mathematics as a language that connects completely different areas of science. And and this is really the the most exciting thing. So, thank you a lot that you took the time at the busy conference to speak with me. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for your interest.